um, by the time I was 13, I had, you know, attempted my first suicide. Um, and that's what ultimately led me uh, to the first hospitalization. Welcome to the Depression Files, where we talk about everything related to mental health, from depression and other mental illnesses, to medication, to suicide awareness and prevention, to our current mental health system, and of course, to the stigma that surrounds mental illnesses. We educate those who may know little about mental illnesses while giving hope to those who may be suffering. I'm your host, Al Levin, and I want to thank you for tuning in. Let's get started. Hello and welcome to The Depression Files. I'm really excited today to have Charles Minguez on the show. Charles is a practicing Buddhist and teaches meditation. He also has a master's degree in journalism, which is quite evident from his blog. Uh, Charles does a lot of blogging as well, and uh, as far as I'm concerned, he's an amazing writer. Um, When I first saw his writing, I... uh, offered him immediately to a guest post on my blog. So Charles, hey, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me and thanks for the kind words. I really appreciate it. It's all true. I think uh, your writing is fantastic. Thank you. So I know uh, you are 37 years old and it sounds like uh, you you have been dealing with some mental illness issues for quite some time. Yeah, definitely. Um, going back to... Uh, teenage years, you know, I was, um, well, I'd say on my blog, you know, before the age of 18, I was hospitalized three times, um, and then diagnosed with schizoaffective disorder and also major depression. Um, so yeah, it's been, it's been going on for quite a long time. Um, so that brings me immediately to a question that I noticed from some of the writing you had done. Um, you mentioned you, uh, were diagnosed with schizoaffective disorder and major depression at age 17. Correct. But by age, age, between the ages of 13 and 18, you were hospitalized three times, right? Yeah. So help us understand how it was that, that you were hospitalized from age 13 to 18 and no diagnosis until the age of 17. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, you know, growing up in my, in my house, um, my parents split, you know, and I was still pretty young. Um, and there was a lot of, domestic violence in the house. Um, so, you know, I didn't really have any coping skills, uh, to deal what, you know, with what was going on in the house. And I just kind of went deep into myself, not being able to really communicate to anybody. Um, and it just, you know, it got the best of me. Um, by the time I was 13, I had, you know, attempted my first suicide. Um, and that's what ultimately led me uh, to the first hospitalization. And then uh, around 16, hospitalized again. And that by that time, you know, the doctors were starting to, you know, kind of put two and two together and uh, come up with more of a diagnosis of what was going on mentally. Right. Um, yeah. And then by the time I was 17, during the last hospitalization, the schizoaffective disorder piece came in due to um, – heavy drug use, actually. Um, that was my, my coping mechanism for a long time, starting from a young age. Okay. Um, self-medicating with the drugs. Totally. Hardcore drugs. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, you know, I think I got blackout drunk the first time I was 13 or 14. Um, and then it escalated pretty quickly. Uh, by the time I was in middle school, um, I was getting into some harder stuff. And then, um, right before, 
my last hospitalization, I was a sophomore, a junior, and by that time I was, you know, doing cocaine and all kinds of crazy stuff. So Right. It still seems yeah. so interesting to me that at age 13, a suicide attempt and a hospitalization and you come out of there with no diagnosis and yeah. And do they just let you out after, and was it inpatient? How long? And at the end, did they just say, all right, see ya? No, that's a great question. So the first time, well, all three times were inpatient. Uh, the first time was about a week or two. You know, it was like the insurance ran up and it was kind of like, all right, you got to get out now. Right. <laughs> so uh, I went back home um, and I did some counseling, um, just outpatient. But that was basically, that was it. Um, how, how yeah. intense was the outpatient therapy? Was that once a week seeing a therapist? Um, if I remember correctly, it was about once a week. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. And do you remember that being for a significant amount of time? Was that like a full year of that or? Uh, that continued on until, you know, up <laughs> to my second and third okay. hospitalizations. Yeah. Yep. Always with the same yep. therapist. No, it started out, you know, when I was got out of the hospital the first time, um, it was, uh, meeting with a female therapist. And then I think I was with her for about a year or two and then it was a male therapist. Um, so different, yeah, different, different people. Right. And, uh, I'm curious about you, you know, identifying not only a different therapist, but different gender. Did you find it to be different working with a different gendered therapist? And if so, did you push to have a male therapist? No, you know, it actually, cause, because of the issues happening in my, in my home, I actually felt more comfortable with a female therapist. Okay. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Uh, so it was easier for me to just open up and uh, be able to communicate a little bit easier. And were you able at age, you know, 13, 14, 15 to be really open and honest with a therapist? No, no, it was definitely a struggle. I mean, yeah. <laughs> I can remember, you know, it's, you know, getting into the teenage years and then on top of that, introducing, you know, all the other things I was doing, um, you know, I basically shut down, you know, I would stare at the floor, right. stare at my toes, just kind of, you know, wiggle my thumbs a little bit and, you know, they would try, try to pull things out here and there, but I, you know, it wasn't too successful. Yeah. It's challenging at that age. I can only imagine. Um, yeah. and, and I would think, I, did you ever get pressure? I wonder about this sometimes, and I'm sure it varies by family. Did your parents say, like, do not mention what happens in the house? Um, I, no, I mean, it wasn't ever really, no one came out and said that, but uh, it was kind of understood. Yeah, <laughs> right. Yeah, there was a lot of violence in the house, so um, it was kind of kept under wraps. Right, that was violence one way, like dad to mom or mom to dad? It was actually, uh, so my, my dad moved out, uh, when I was about 11 or 12 and my mom had a boyfriend move in and he was the, uh, the guy who was, was abusive in the house. Okay. Physically abusive towards your mom. Oh yeah. Uh Yep. Yeah. And did you have siblings? I did. I do. Yeah. Uh I have two, two sisters, um, who were both in the house as well. Uh, Um, both younger younger? than me. Younger. Younger. Yeah. Yep. And that has got to be so incredibly difficult. Um, first of all, was your was your dad before he moved out abusive at all? He wasn't. No. Okay. No. So yeah, then, all of a sudden, this new guy up. moves in. He's physically abusive to a mom that I'm guessing you you love. Did you get along well with your mom? Yeah, you know, um, 
I think up until that point, and then it right. was like there was just so much going on in the house that there was it was just impossible to to have any sort of relationship. Right, right. She was probably so consumed with this guy and the yeah. abuse she yep. was trying to to deal with. Yep. Um, and then you must have felt so helpless at such a young age um, to to try to even yeah. deal with that. I can't imagine. Yeah. I'm- yeah, exactly. I mean, there's no, you know, I didn't really have anyone to, to reach out to or say like, Hey, this is what's going on. Or, uh, you know, none of my friends where I was growing up really would understand. So I didn't feel comfortable going to them and, you know, saying anything at school was just, you know, it just wasn't a possibility. So, right. Um, what was school like at those ages going to school, coming home to, you never knew what probably. Yeah. Um, so it it was challenging for sure. Um, I actually struggled a lot. Um, I got held back due to the the hospitalization when I was 16. So I had to repeat a year. That's a tough age also to be held back. Oh my God. Exactly. Yeah. I can remember, you know, the repeating 11th grade and having to go back in and I was in like in the same classes with my younger sister. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Right. I, you know, it was, it was, it was awkward for sure. Um, and then ultimately, uh, due to, I just, you know, I couldn't, I couldn't kick the drug. So I ended up, um, dropping out of high school, um, mm-hmm. when I was 17. So, right. Yeah. Uh, and what do you do at age 17 when you drop out? Were you still living at home? Um, I was, uh, very briefly, um, shortly after that, uh, my mom had asked me to leave, uh, because of my drug use. Okay. So I was kind of out on my own, um, trying to figure out what I was going to do. Um, I did have, you know, a little job at the time that was helping me, you know, supporting me a little bit, but it wasn't like, you know, I didn't, I didn't have any, uh, nothing really to hold on to or like no prospects for, for a promising future at that point. Right. Right. Yeah. Where were you shacking up at night? What were you doing about sleeping? Um, I stayed in my car for a little bit and then, um, I had reached out to a friend, um, who connected, um, with another friend and her and her mom had talked and were like, you know, he could, you know, come stay in our house and basically was squatting in their, you know, their extra bedroom, um, until I could figure out what I was going to do next. Uh And, and what did happen next? Well, the next big, you know, milestone was, um, you know, I get out of the hospital. Um, I'm supposed to be doing part of the release, um, was to do like an NA program. Um, I did one, one class, one program and I I just, I couldn't handle it. (laughs) It wasn't my jam. Um, so, you know, ultimately I ended up relapsing, um, got off eventually off some of the harder stuff, but was still drinking pretty heavy. And this was going on, you know, into my early twenties. Um, And eventually, you know, I'm staying at this, my friend's house and, you know, I called my dad just asking like, you know, can I come stay with you, you know, until I get back on my feet again. And, you know, he, he told me no. And that was like, that was one of the, uh, turning points in my path. Wow. Just not having anywhere to go, not knowing what I was going to do next. And, uh, I was like, you know what, I got to. I got to figure stuff out because if I keep going down this road, <laughs> it's not going to end well. So. so, so in the end, your dad saying no, you think actually was a huge turning point 
in a good way that made you realize you got to start working on this? Yeah, I mean, at the time, I didn't, I didn't see it that way. Right, but, right. Uh, looking back on it and having conversations with my dad now, you know, it's probably the best thing that ever happened to me. You know, right. You're like, pretty tight with your dad now. Yeah, yeah. With both my parents, we have you know really great relationships and a oh, lot that's of that. Fantastic. That's really yeah, really yeah. good to hear a happy ending with the folks because that sounds yeah. like you went through a lot. How did that like? I can't imagine reaching out to your dad, probably almost like a last straw. Like I, I decide you decide, okay, I'm, I'm just going to reach out to my dad. And then he says, no. And you're already in this state of, of dealing, doing drugs to self-medicate. I can't imagine what a devastating blow that must have been. Yeah, it was pretty, it was pretty heavy. Um, you know, I was at that point, realizing that I had to make some changes. Um, but then again, you, you get a blow like that. And it's like the only coping mechanism, you know, is to, you know, hit the drugs and the alcohol again. Right. <laughs> so, right. And did he actually engage in a conversation around it with you or did he just say, Nope, no way. And end a story hang up or yeah, or, really? No. I mean, it was, you know, it's like, I love you, but you know, I, I can't have you here. Basically it was the conversation <laughs> due to the drugs. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And of course yeah. at the time, like you said, you couldn't understand that. And, and I, I, ne I try never to judge anybody who decides to, to boot a kid out of the house or, um, you know, like this, not allow them to move in with them because it's easy to judge and say, Oh my God, your dad, what a jerk. You're, you're yeah, down exactly. and out and he didn't help you. And, you know, it's tough to put yourself in their shoes and really think about what what's going on with them as well at that time. Exactly. Yeah, and it's, you and know, struggle. I have three children of my own now. And, you know, just, you know, if there's days where that phone call, that conversation plays in the back of my mind. And <laughs> I don't, right. you know, I give my dad a lot of credit. I don't know how I would be able to handle that. So Yeah, well, I give yeah, you, a, you a lot of credit to reestablish a relationship with him and, and make sure you didn't hold a grudge against him for something like yeah. that. Um, so age 17, you finally, after all these struggles come out of a, an appointment with a diagnosis, right? Schizoaffective yep. disorder and major depression. Tell us yep. about that appointment. And when you got that news. Yeah. So initially I was actually, um, misdiagnosed with bipolar, um, so I was taking uh, lithium for a long time, um, and the side effects from that were just like horrendous, um, and it wasn't really helping at all. <laughs> yeah, can you give an example so, of some of the side effects from the lith lithium? I, just totally feeling like a walking zombie, you know, just in the clouds all the time. Right. Um, and then like fluctuation in weight, like just up and down all the time, not uh -huh. being able to stay at a healthy weight. Right, um, right. I think I blew up to like 200 pounds, over 200 pounds. Um, wow. Yeah, at one point. And I do want to yeah. reiterate to listeners that, that it was, I mean, you were given a drug that for a, a misdiagnosis, right? I mean, exactly. I've, I've definitely heard that lithium has worked wonders for some people with bipolar disorder. So I don't want totally. people to listen to you and just get the wrong impression of, oh, I can never touch lithium. No, no, me neither. And that's exactly true. I mean, for I have friends who are bipolar and we're taking lithium and it works wonders for them, you know? Right, so right. I think it's really important. 
Um, and then one of the things that I talk about in my try to talk about in my blog a lot is just keeping that open communication with the doctor because it's things like this that can throw you for a loop. So you got to make sure that you're on top of it. Uh, yeah, I'm a huge believer in that too, to communicate particularly, particularly around the medication, the side effects yep. and, uh, you know, to, to understand why you're taking what you're taking and what they're suggesting. I've met some yep. guys on multiple meds and they really have no clue what one or two of them are, are even for. Wow. Um, so you, you were diagnosed with bipolar disorder and at the time you probably believed it. Were you with a yep. therapist at the time or was this in one of the hospitalizations? This was in, yeah, one of the hospitalizations. Yeah. And, and they um, talked so. to you and asked you some history and then from your conversation, they diagnosed you with bipolar disorder. Is that essentially how it happened? That's essentially how it went down. Yeah. yeah. Yep. And then, so we ended up, um, I've switched doctors, um, or was seeing another doctor or another doctor was coming in on a, a separate round or something like that. And I was having conversations with him and he was like, I don't know about that. <laughs> so, really? Yeah. Uh, we ended up, you know, switching the medications. Um, and it was like night and day difference. Wow. So, that was during the same hospitalization during the same hospitalization. So yeah. that's really interesting to me because I would I'm curious and wonder if it's a doctor from the same practice, right? And he goes completely, yep. thankfully, completely against maybe yep. one of his partners or, or a colleague to yep. say, you know, I'm not so sure about this. Yeah. He and switched the, the meds and, and immediately you noticed a difference? Yeah. Yeah. So, um, you know, yeah. because of the schizoaffective disorder, you know, I was given some antipsychotic medication. Uh -huh. Um and immediately, you know, just my mind had more clarity, uh, most immediately. So, wow. Yeah, it was helpful. Very helpful. Um, and at the same time he did both those doctors also say major depression as well. They did. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Eventually came to agree on that. Right. And, uh, can you explain to us the difference if there is a difference between schizoaffective disorder and schizophrenia? Yeah, so um, the way that I have come to read about it and know about it um, from my personal experience is that um, uh, schizoaffective disorder um, are symptoms similar to schizophrenia, but it's not full-blown schizophrenia. So um, you can have, you know, auditory and visual hallucinations, um, but it, as far as I know, it can be treated with the medication like I was taking, um, and also just the thoughts, you know, repetitive thoughts, just not being able to turn off, um, which can also be treated with the medication. Um, when it comes to schizo schizophrenia, um, it's, it's my understanding that it's a lot more intense, um, those hallucinations, um, visual and auditorial. Okay. Okay. I, you know, I've only, I think asked that question once and had very similar answer. So it's very similar symptoms, but just almost like schizophrenia light. It yeah. sounds yeah. like. Okay. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And, uh, were you having some of those audio auditory and visual hallucinations? Is that a part of the schizoaffective disorder that yeah. you, and could you share what, what yep. that's like, what that experience is like? Yeah, it was pretty scary, honestly. <laughs> um, and you know, again, you know, from my personal experience and from what I've read about schizoaffective disorder is, um, you know, it's drug induced, you know, um, you know, seeing shadows or hearing people talk that are not there. Um, and it, it freaks you out. 
that freaks you out. And maybe that's another um, determining factor too is, you know, I haven't experienced schizophrenia, but I have experienced a schizoaffective disorder and I'm aware of when it's happening. So I don't know if maybe that's a difference, you know, oh, when you're right. schizophrenic, you're not, maybe not aware of what is actually happening. You know? So you are There's literally, yeah. So you're literally hearing voices and at the same time you realize and know it's not real. Yeah. Like this is not right. Yeah. Uh-huh. And you're able, so you're able yeah. to, to essentially even discount those voices if, if it, and, and are they telling you negative things or what kinds of things do you hear from the voices? No, I mean, it was just more like just random mumblings, you know, it wasn't right. like anything, you know, scary or crazy or like off the wall. It's just, you know, like somebody else was in the room with me, uh-huh. um, trying to start a conversation and there's no one there. Right. And, yeah. and would the hallucinations come in waves? Like you have them for a week and then they're gone for a year and then they come for a week or how does, is there any kind of pattern like that? No, they would come in waves. Um, and thankfully, I mean, I haven't experienced any of those symptoms in a very long time, um, okay. which is awesome. I'm <laughs> very yeah. grateful for that. Right. Um, but yeah, it would definitely, you know, come in waves for how, sure. How long would you say it's been since you have had any um, symptoms of the schizoaffective disorder? Uh, definitely over 10 years. Wow, so, fantastic. Yeah. Yeah, so, you know, incredible. I'm certainly no doctor, but I, I would think the farther out you get, the more likely it is that, that it's not going to happen again. Any, I, any I'm truth not to that? Sure. Honestly, yeah. I, I hope that's the case. If yeah. it is, whether yeah. it is true or not, put that in your mind. I <laughs> yeah, think that's exactly. a, a really good, you know, why not figure like that, that. And, and think that, yep. um, I do, I think our minds are so powerful around things like that, that really could be helpful to think yeah. I'm that far right. out and not to discount anything, you know, to remain healthy and everything, but just positive that, Hey, I'm far out. How about uh, your major depression? How would you describe that? Um, that's definitely been more of a struggle. Um, you know, that's something I think is always going to be with me. There's definitely days, you know, where I can tell I'm in a funk, um, and it's tough to get out of bed, you know? Right. Uh, but, I feel now I have tools and I have coping skills that I didn't have before in the past, you know, positive coping skills that I can be more aware now and say, okay, well, this is what's going on and this is what I need to do to get back to the base level. So, can you give an example of some of the tools you pull out when you're feeling like you're in that funk? Yeah, definitely. Um, getting good sleep for sure is on the top of the list. Yeah, that is so important. <laughs> yep. Uh, I'm such a cranky pants when I don't get enough sleep and yeah. it kicks my, uh, kicks me into overdrive. So. Right. Right. <laughs> um, eating, eating well, trying to eat clean foods. Um, I meditate. I try to meditate every day. Um, I write, I do journaling, um, and exercise. Those are definitely on the top, tops of the list. Um, and I know, you know, if I, you know, starting to feel a funk come on, I can go out and maybe do a, a, a run on my lunch, kind of get me, you know, back, back to center. Right. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. Um, so let me ask you this question. Um, you mentioned, so I think all those coping mechanisms, first of all, are great. And, and I think it varies for different people, right? But I think as many yeah. tools as you can pull out, especially if you feel that coming on, like I, I know I just dive wholeheartedly into all my tools if I feel like yeah. 
it, something may be going downhill for me. But let's say you mentioned yourself, there are times you can't get out of your bed. So mm-hmm. how do you get yourself to reach into any of your tool belt when are when you're having a day where you can't get out of the bed? And um, so what happens then? It's a great question. Um, just my motivation, you know, I've, so at this point in my life, I'm just so motivated to kind of kick this thing in the butt right, <laughs> and not have to deal with, uh, you know, the feelings and the emotions and everything that come along with it. Um, I just, I just want to get through it. So that's been, you know, over the last two years, I feel like my motivation has kicked into high gear and I just got to push myself, you know, get up. Um, another thing I do is I try to use tiny habits. Like I have little chunks taken out in my schedule. Um, so that I know when I wake up in the morning, I'm going to go meditate for a couple of minutes and then I'm going to go write for a couple of minutes before, you know, getting everybody ready to go to school. Right. And then I'm going to have time for work. And then after I'm done work, um, I'll have time for reading or maybe doing some more meditation or going for a run, something like that. Yeah. So I hear you saying you're prioritizing getting something in your schedule yeah. to make sure you're you're working on the mental health all the time. It's so important. Yeah. So important. Um, one of my blog posts talks about the importance of having structure in your day, and I think you just nailed it, right? Like, you know you're going to wake up with enough time to do a short meditation, to do a journal, and then you hit the day. And yep. I think, like you said, too, if you're having one of those days where it's really tough to get out of bed, I think you're at a point, it sounds like, where you just do whatever it takes to get out of that bed and, and start dipping into those tools as much as you yep. can. Yeah. Cause I know if I don't, I'm, I'm gonna, it's, it's easy for me to just go down that slippery slope and then it's more difficult to climb back out. Yeah, so. absolutely. Um, anything in particular, I know you blog a lot, right? And, and it's all mostly mm-hmm. around mental health. Anything yep. in particular you do with your journaling or any tips or advice for, for maybe some men who want to try journaling? Yeah, so one of the things that I do before I even journal is actually just write a short gratitude list. Oh, that's um, fantastic. Like one to five. Yeah, it's been such a wonderful practice. You know, one to five, uh, one to two sentences each um, could be something as simple as, you know, I'm enjoying this coffee that I just made while I'm writing or, um, you know, I woke up this morning <laughs> yeah. to, to, you know, I'm so grateful that I have this house that I live in that protects me from, you know, the weather. Um, yeah. I, yeah, think and that's I usually a, do that. I think that's a great practice. Um, in fact, uh, so I still go to a men's support group for depression and anxiety and I talked a lot about journaling and some guys asked me if I would send out some kind of journal starters and that was Mm -hmm. about one of the first ones and most of the men have decided to just keep it private and do their own writing and I believe them (laughs) when they say they're writing. (laughs) I hope I'm not completely wasting my time but um yeah, so and they've said it's been helpful and and they appreciate it. So once in a while I'll still just shoot an email out to the group and say, "Hey, here's another question." And one of the first ones I did was exactly that, like write write five things you you feel grateful about. And I do think it's really important to remember those things. Yeah, and like you said, the the mindset thing is, you know, it's so easy for us to fall into the negative and kind of blame ourselves and beat ourselves up. Um but, you know, it happens to me a lot too, still, you know, yeah. why am I feeling like this? You know, and then you get into that rut 
and you just kind of pound that rut. <laughs> yeah. Oh, and then you get mad at yourself for being frustrated about being exactly. in bed. <laughs> yeah. It's yep. nonstop. Yeah. And I feel like, yeah. And as, you know, as men, I think it's difficult for us to, I don't want to say for every man, but, you know, from my personal experience, um, you know, we just never talked about these things. Um, or express these things growing up. So yeah, this is a really great practice. Yeah. And I had to chuckle when you talked about even writing like that, you were grateful for being able to get out of bed. Um, and I know <laughs> some of the listeners probably have heard me say this, but throughout my major depressive bout, my worst one, um, I wrote in a journal every evening. And at the end, I wrote a piece that just said today in order to work towards recovery, I, and I listed at least three bullet points and it might've been, I got out of bed or I dropped my kid off at school. Um, and I just needed to acknowledge that I was working towards getting better because I knew like in my wife's eyes or anybody else's eyes and even the way it felt, it didn't always feel like I was doing anything because I couldn't. So I wanted to make sure I was recognizing even the small things that I was doing and giving myself some kind of credit for it. So journaling about it was really helpful for me. So tell us, uh, when, when did you start advocating and, uh, when did you start working on your blog? So I've been, um, you know, eventually went back to school, uh, got my GED and then went on to get my master's in journalism. Um, so when I graduated, I, uh, how long ago was this? <laughs> it's going back quite a while. Um, I was writing a blog, um, about social media, um, for about, it's probably six years ago, I guess. Um, but then it was about two years ago or a year and a half ago, I decided, you know, to have this blog, I'm going to put something out there a little bit more personable and share a little bit about my history and right, you know, as soon as I did that, um, I got lots of emails, <laughs> people reaching out to me like, Whoa, yeah. uh, what was that? Um, can we, can we learn more about that? Can we hear more of your story? Um, so yeah, about a year and a half ago, two years ago, that was when I switched gears and, um, you know, I also, I'm a, I'm a member of NAMI, um, and right now it's mental health, mental health month. So yeah. if you can get out there and support and, uh, you know, make a donation, yeah, that'd be awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, besides writing and too, I'm, you know, I'm trying to do some speaking engagements and just meeting with, uh, different groups of people kind of sharing stories and tools. Yeah. I know you had, uh, you had mentioned that you thought it was incredibly important to be sharing our stories and, and I couldn't agree more. I think it, it is one thing that helps to normalize the conversations if we can share our stories. Um, yeah. do you remember what that first piece was that you wrote about that, got such a reaction and emails and such and was kind of a springboard springboard to changing your your format yeah it was uh one of the posts that i had written about um my second hospitalization um and coming back to school um and what that was like that whole experience of you know growing up in a small town and coming (laughs) i was in a city hospital you know i come back and uh you know rumor mills you know oh spread it goodness. through the school <laughs> yeah yeah yeah. it was yeah it was quite the experience um, right so and was yeah. that the first time you opened up about any of it through that one blog piece yeah yeah okay. um, putting it out there online like that yeah you yeah know, i've talked to you know my wife knows my my history and some close friends and stuff like that but never 
you know, putting it out there on the internet and being like, hmm. Yeah. <laughs> I and, don't know. And you had already this, had a, you, know, you had already had a following. So people were already reading your blog. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Okay, cool. And now, um, for the most part, all of your blog posts revolve around mental illness, um, in one way or another or maintaining mental health. They do. Yeah. So I made a decision. Um, you know, I told my, my readers, you know, this is what I'm going to be focusing on. Um, you know, I totally understand if you don't want to follow along, um, but I still think it's really important. And most of the people stayed on board, which is pretty cool. So. Yeah. Oh, that's awesome. Um, you said you have three kids. Yeah. yeah. How, how old are they and what boys, girls? Yeah, I have two boys and a, and a girl. Uh, they are 12, 10, and my daughter just turned five in April. Okay, awesome. Yeah. My kids yeah. are pretty similar. I've got four. We have a 12-year-old, a 10-year-old, and then twins who will be seven in June. Oh, wow. Yeah. Wow. Um, yeah, so that Keeping was you busy. Yeah, you know, we had to talk uh, talk each other into having a third kid, and uh, we got number three and four. And I wouldn't give either back. <laughs> love them dearly, but wow, that was kind of a shocker at the time. Um, so your mental health challenges and struggles that you've been through, what do the kids know? What don't they know? And what are your thoughts on sharing with kids? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, and so funny that you asked too, because, you know, my oldest son is approaching, you know, the age I was when I was first hospitalized. Um, right. and you know, every time I see him, it just takes me right back <laughs> yeah. to where I was. And, you know, recently he came home from school and was asking me, you know, about depression. I guess, you know, a student confided in him. And, you know, it spurred some really great conversations. Um, I am definitely up and, you know, support sharing, you know, with my children. Um, I'm not going to give them all the nitty gritty details, but I definitely tell them all the time, you know, please come to me. Don't feel like you can't, Um, you know, we can have these conversations and, you know, talk about it. I think that's one of the most important things parents can do is make sure that line of communication is wide open and it's tough, like especially middle schoolers, right? They go through that middle school phase, but man, it is so important. And, and, you know, I'm an administrator in a K through eight school and we have two campuses and I'm at the fourth grade through eighth grade. And, um, hearing about kids with suicidal ideation, uh, and depression is not, uh, it's unfortunately become so that it's not even unusual anymore. Yes, yeah, exactly. It's, it's really um, kind of scary um, the the amount yep. we hear and see. So I think that's awesome. The younger ones, have you touched on it a bit, or is it just more about communicating feelings, or have you shared some of your story? Uh, no, well, with my two boys, yeah. With my daughter, it's just more yeah. about the you know the feeling and um, yeah. the emotions and. You know, when she gets upset or has a bad day at school, you know, sitting down and, you know, just trying to talk about it in, in, in a way you can communicate with a five-year-old, you know? <laughs> right, right. Yeah, definitely a lot different than uh, than a 12-year-old. Yeah, yep. It's cool that a friend confided in your son, too. Um, yeah. And I hope, uh, you know, then your son... It's a lot on a kid, though, right? Like, yeah. I, I share with kids all the time, you know telling a friend about being sad is one thing, but when you start having those, um, you know, really sad, really scary thoughts, it's time to seek out an adult. Um, definitely. And, uh, yeah, can be, can be challenging. What's next for you? Do you have, uh, 
plans for the future regarding your advocacy work or the path of journalism? Yeah, so you know, we're going to keep plugging along on the blog. Um, I've been working a little bit more closely with my local uh, NAMI chapter here to see if I could do some more outreach with them. Um, and then um, long-term project is um, you know working on a, a book about my journey, um, so which has been really fun. Oh, cool! And you, so you're in yeah. the process of writing a book. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. I'm chunking away at it little by little, you know, uh-huh. trying to, when I wake up in the morning after I journal, I typically, uh, will start working on the book. Awesome. Do you have any yeah. kind of timeline for that or is it just something you just keep plugging away and, and no thoughts really on a timeline or schedule for that? Well, I'd like to have it wrapped up by the end of next year, but we'll see, we'll see how yeah. it goes. Yeah. Yeah. It's quite the process. And, uh, is your wife supportive of all the work you're doing, the, the book and the advocacy work? Yeah, she is. It's been really incredible. Um, just to have that support at home. Um, you know, she stands behind me a hundred percent. Um, and it's, you know, I couldn't do it without her really. Yeah. It's been, been incredible to have that support. Uh-huh. Hey, um, I want to come back to one thing that I noticed in your, a piece of your writing, if I remember correctly, with the with all of with the schizoaffective disorder and the major depression, and I know we talked medication earlier, but are you off completely of all medications? I am. Yeah, um, that's been about ten years as well. Um, that I, I haven't been on any medications. Wow, that's yeah. that is awesome. Um, and so, yeah. do you think that is? I know that you seem to know a fair amount about obviously the schizoaffective disorder, um, as you're dealing with it, but also schizophrenia, like, is it even possible for somebody on schizophrenia to be off of medication? Um, as i honestly, I don't know. I mean, yeah. from things that I've read, I don't think so, right. but I don't that, want to say that yes was what no. I was, yeah. that was what I was kind of thinking myself. And at first yeah. I was under the impression you had schizophrenia and were off medications. And I was no, really, no, no, really yeah. super. so off meds for 10 years. What was yep. the process of getting off the medication? Like, um, it was definitely challenging. <laughs> that's for sure. Cause like I said, you know, there was, you know, well, first the misdiagnosis and that, that medication not working was kind of a fiasco, but then, getting on the medicines that were helping, um, it was like a miracle, you know, it, it worked so well. But then over time, you know, I think I built up a tolerance to the medication and then I started having some side effects from that medication. And, you know, I got to a point where I was like, I think maybe I could try to do this without medication. So I worked with my doctor, um, just kind of gradually, you know, lowered the dosage. Right. Yeah, to wean off yeah. of them. Were you, exactly. were you nervous about that at all? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I could see that being a a nervous time as well. Um, And I have heard sometimes, at least with depression, some people jumping off the meds too early thinking like, hey, I feel great now. And then they jump off because they finally feel good. They think they can get off the meds right away um, and and realize and and who knows for knows for sure exactly what's going on chemically and so forth and whether or not it was too early or if it was just the circumstances that brought it back on the depression. But, but it seems that that is definitely a concern. People feeling good and jumping off. Um, well that's fantastic. 10 years, um, without any medication and you seem to have a really balanced view 
on medication. I don't want to just draw any yeah. assumptions, but I mean, no, I've heard no. you describe it as pretty much um, a one, like for you, an incredibly important piece of your recovery yep. for the start of it and yeah. wanting to get off of it when you could. Yeah. Yeah. I would never advocate for anyone to just go cold turkey and right. drop drop all the meds. Um, and But I would also say, you know, if you're working with a doctor and doing it uh, responsibly, um, you know, try, but don't just stop taking your medication. Right, right. What about what yeah. would you say to somebody who says, uh, there is no way I'm taking medications. I can't, I can't get out of bed. I can't get to work. Um, but I'm not going to, I don't believe in medication. Yeah, I think that's a tough one. Um, it's, I would try to still advocate for that person to at least go talk to somebody and see if they'd be willing to just have a conversation with the doctor. Um, right. Yeah. No, yeah. I like that. I like that idea, you know, at least open up the conversation yeah. and again, learn about it. Right. Learn, yep. um, because I, obviously there are some people who are quite resistant. Um, yeah. and for me, I just feel very strongly that it, um, people should not judge other people for the choices they've made. We, um, particularly around mental illnesses, um, we've all gone through some really challenging times and it's not an easy choice. And then to hear people, you know, once in a while I'll see them on Twitter and stuff like just, yeah. you know, berating all medications because theirs was bad or they had a bad experience and they're anti-psychiatrists and anti-drugs. And I just think yeah. um, we should not judge yeah. people for the difficult choices they're making. No, exactly. And it's not a constructive for the conversation either. I mean, it's gotta be, if you're going to be an advocate, you know, you got to get information from all sides and mm -hmm. work with everybody. Yeah, absolutely. I've thought about that even having the podcast because people share views that I don't necessarily agree with. And sometimes I push them on that, but I want all perspectives heard. Um, so yeah. I'm not going to pick and choose and say, well, you can't uh, be on my show because I don't believe the way you believe. Right. Um, right. So before we wrap up, I'm wondering uh, what other advice in general you would give to somebody who's listening to the show who might be in a really down place, um, really struggling. I would just say don't give up and know that there is light on the other side of the storm. Um, and even though you might not feel like reaching out to somebody, just try as hard as you can to connect with just one person, you know, and don't be afraid to open up. Yeah, I think that is very good advice and really, really important advice. All right, Charles. Well, I want to thank you for your time. Uh, I want to thank you for your advocacy work. And, uh, and I want to ask you publicly, please give me a piece of writing, uh, <laughs> original or not original. I'd love to put sure. some of your writing uh, on my blog and sure. Uh, make sure you uh, stay in touch and stay healthy. Well, dear, thank you, Al. I appreciate it. Thank you for listening to The Depression Files. Please know that if you are currently suffering from depression and are experiencing thoughts of suicide, please reach out for help. In the United States, you can text to 741741 to connect with a trained crisis counselor, or you can go to suicide.org for a list of international suicide hotlines. If you're a man who has experienced depression and would like to be interviewed for the show, please reach out to me on Twitter at 
Al Levin 18. Thank you again for listening to The Depression Files. <laughs>